You're listening to an app session from the 2019 Art Conference in Anaheim, California. For more resources to equip you and your local church, visit arcchurches.com. Thanks, Anthony. I don't know if you just coming in or able to find a seat because they've all just turned. Thank you for sitting on the front row, by the way. Good to see you. So, welcome, everybody. And it's been an honor to have uh, Ark at Eastside again. We just love the Ark family and love what God's doing through this great movement. And uh, thanks for hanging out a little bit this afternoon. So, question as we start out Are any of you fishermen? Anybody like to fish in the room? Good, there's three of us. That's good. Three and a half. And uh, I like to fish, and my family has actually vacationed all of my life. Every year of my life, we have a family cabin on a lake in northern Minnesota. And so I spend time there every summer, and I've got a favorite fishing spot I like to go to. Uh, But to get there, you really have to want to get there, because it's about 20 miles from where our cabin is. And on this particular lake where we fish, you can't launch on the lake. You have to launch your fishing boat on another lake, and you have to motor across this first lake. And then there's like a channel that's about the length of a football field and about as wide as this section of chairs probably here. And so you have to slow down and drive your boat through the channel. And then it gets so shallow at one point you have to raise your motor a little bit to kind of putt through. And then it gets so shallow you have to raise your motor all the way and you have to get out your oars and you have to row through. And then the last 50 feet of it, the bottom of the boat drags on the bottom of the channel. And that's when my wife and kids get out and pull me through the last 50 feet. And no, we all get out, and we, we pull the boat through. And then it opens up to like the most quiet, beautiful, peaceful lake that you can imagine. I've seen eagles fly overhead over the years. I've seen deer come drink out of the water. And the fishing back there is just incredible. I mean, we've brought basketfuls of fish home uh, from that lake for many years. And uh, there's only two cabins on that lake. I've never seen more than a couple of other boats on that lake, you know, other than our own at any given time. And so it might raise the question in your mind, if the lake is so beautiful and if the fishing is so great, why aren't there more boats back there? And the answer is really simple. It just takes so much work to get there. You got to trailer your boat. You got to drive 20 miles. You got to launch on another lake. You got to motor across the first lake. You got to go in the channel. You got to raise your motor a little bit. You got to raise it all the way and get out of your oars and row through. Then you got to get out of the boat and portage the boat through the last 50 feet. It takes so much work to get there. But only those who are willing to endure that work experience the better fishing on the other side. So here's what I know about all of you you're, you're here at this session today. You believe there's some better fishing on the other side. You believe that, I like my dad as a pastor, I used to like what he said, he goes, I always keep two churches in mind. The church we are, and the church by God's grace we can become. And some of you have a, a church in mind of what you can become, or maybe it's not even an entire church, maybe it's a ministry that you lead, maybe it's a it's an area of your church that you lead, that you're thinking about retool and, and redreaming a little bit. So uh, I want you to look at this piece of artwork that I put together here. Uh, anybody know what this is? This is what's called in organizational management circles, the organizational S-curve. And it charts the progress of an organization over time. Uh, progress over time. And you can actually use the organizational S-curve to chart a lot of different things. You can actually use it, if you think about a lot of businesses, kind of follow a pattern like this. You know, somebody starts with a great business idea, and they just think it's going to be, you know, 
up and to the right, they've created a new widget or something, and that's going to grow. But they quickly discover it's harder than they thought it was going to be. And maybe they were underfinanced, maybe they were undercapitalized, maybe it wasn't a good idea, maybe they didn't have the right team. A lot of businesses uh, die right here. What is it, like 80% of all restaurants, you know, don't make it. A lot of them die like But others kind of figure out their market and they start to make some profits and then they have to hire more people and then the business is growing and then they have to expand and then they have to put policies and procedures in place and then they got all kinds of HR issues that they have to start dealing with. And what happens to a business over time is they become overmanaged and underled. And every business goes through this. And if something doesn't change, that business will die, right? And what happens to businesses, uh, think about how you can chart a marriage with the organizational S-curve. <laughs> you, know, you think about it. Two people fall in love, and they think it's just going to be nothing but bliss, 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 you know, happy, happy, happy. And a short time, about two days later, <laughs> they discover that marriage is going to be harder than they thought it was going to be, Right. And, 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 and it's more difficult, and it's not like the honeymoon is over, and a lot of marriages don't make it. Others say, hey, I've got to learn to be more selfless, and, and, uh, and they start growing, they learn how to communicate, how to put the other first, and, and maybe they have a child or two, or three, or ten. And, and over time, you know, maybe it's at the seven-year itch, or the ten-year mark, or something, they realize that something is starting to change in their relationship, and if they, if they don't grow in some new ways, their marriage is in danger of dying. Now, what happens to businesses and what happens to marriage happens to every single church in the world. You know, when a church begins, when a church plants, people have a heart to reach their community, to make a difference for God, to lead people to Jesus, and they're just dreaming it's going to be up and to the right, and every one of you who's planted a church know it's harder than you ever thought it was going to be. And it took more money, and it involved more heartbreaks, and it involved more crises, and more buildings that fell through, and all those kinds of things. And, you know, not every church plant makes it. Thankful for organizations like ARC, that success rate is going much higher now. And over time, this new church starts to, they reach a family, and then another family, and some individuals, and they start to grow, and have to start children's ministries, and small group ministries, and assimilation ministries to help, you know, people get on a growth track, and discipling, and all those kinds of things, and then they, you know, have buildings, and they have to get insurances, and they got vans, and, and, and what happens is churches over time, as they grow, can become overmanaged, and over, and underled. And if something doesn't change, that church will die. And it happens all the time. Let's just, you know, 80% of all churches are here. 80% are plateaued or declining. And depending on the estimates that you read, five to 10,000 churches this year in North America will hold their last service, sing their last song, say their last prayer, and close their doors for the last time. Five to 10,000 churches will die this year. So what happens at this point? Well, in a business, this is when you got to develop some new initiatives and relearn the market. Maybe change your marketing, change your product, improve your product, get some new people. Uh, uh, this is where people in a marriage have to say, let's get into some counseling. Let's go to a retreat. Let's start reading some books. Let's work on some things to grow the marriage. And this is where a church has to fall on their knees and say, God, 
What's next? What's the new thing that you want to do? What's the fresh wind that you want to blow in our midst? 2,600 years ago, the Greek uh, philosopher Heraclitus said, life is like a river. He said it's in a continual state of change. He said you can put your foot into the river, and then when you take your foot out of the river and put it back into the river, it's a different river because the river has moved on. Life is in a continual state of change. Life is in a continual state of change. Churches are in a continual state of change. And yet, we fear change. You know, we have a lot of phobias in life. I read one time that the number one phobia people have, you know what it is? Fear of public speaking. You know what number two phobia is? Death. Think about that. Death is number two. (laughs) Number three is fear of death while public speaking. (laughs) I do that all the time. But I got to believe that near the top of fears that people have is the fear of change. Because change is hard for all of us. My wife Barbara and I, uh, this January, we will have been married 27 years. And from the day we got married, my life changed. And Barbara initiated several non-pre-sanctioned changes in my life. Non-pre-approved that had not been discussed before marriage. For instance, one of the things that she changed was my soap. And I'd like to say I was cool with that. I didn't complain, but I whined. I wiped. I whined about it. I've been a gold dial soap guy all of my life. That's a manly soap. That's a deodorant soap right there. But she changed my soap. And for the last almost 27 years now, I'm embarrassed to admit this with so many guys in the room, my soap has been caress. But my skin is silky smooth. So change is hard, but change can be a good thing, right? So the question is, we all watch churches blow up, right? When they try to navigate change or they go through major transition points. How, do you, how does a church reboot itself? How does it experience healthy change in that? And I don't want to oversimplify the process, but I've studied change, I've studied change a lot over the years, both in the church world and the business world and all kinds of different dynamics. And I'm convinced it always comes down to four things. And I always, I, it helps me if I think about it like a, like a farmer or a gardener who's planting seed. There's four stages. The first stage is you prepare the soil. You have to prepare the soil. And then the second stage is you actually plant the seed. Or in our case, you plant the change. You initiate the change. But you're not done at that point. A gardener isn't done at that point. Then the third stage is you have to cultivate and fertilize and pull the weeds. You have to help it get strong so that it's going to grow. And then the fourth phase eventually is the harvest. Now, as leaders, as pastors, as people who care about the church, the thing that we're anxious to of those four stages, do you know what our two favorite stages are? Number two and number four. We want to plant the change. We want to experience the harvest. Yeah. The hardest work and the stages that are going to determine whether you win or lose, so to speak, in successfully navigating change are really in one and three. How well do you prepare the soil for the change that you're going to plan? And then once you've done it, how do you help that take root? How do you help it uh, grow? How do you help it, uh, you know, flourish so that there can be? A harvest. And I'll just tell you right now, if you intend to have a long ministry, you know, I look at Philip Wagner here, he's just 
35 years at Oasis Church in Los Angeles. Here's something I can guarantee you. In 35 years, I'll bet Philip and Holly have had to reinvent Oasis at least five times, if not more. They've had to reboot for different eras and different times. And I always say it this way. And uh, I don't, this isn't a statistic I found anywhere. This is just what I believe. So, you know, it's worth looking. <laughs> Take it at that. But I believe most churches have to at least partially reinvent themselves every three to five years and dramatically reinvent themselves every 10 to 15 years if they want to stay relevant because culture is moving faster. And that may even accelerate. That, that may even accelerate uh, in the years ahead. And change is always hard. Ryan, Ron Heifetz of Harvard University says, leadership is the art of disappointing people at the rate they can, at a rate they can stand. <laughs> the art of disappointing people at, at a rate they can stand. So let me, talk, let me talk you through each of these four stages a little bit. How do you prepare the soil? How do you prepare the soil? And we're going to camp the longest on this because I believe that this is where we win or lose the most, and, and this is where many of us are making our biggest mistakes in leading through change. Preparing the soil always starts with raising urgency. People are not in the market for changes, for problems they don't understand, see, or perceive. Many times we initiate changes and nobody realized there's even a problem. Ken Holtman, in his book, Managing Transition, says that most leaders spend 90% of their energy selling the vision, a solution to a problem, and 10% of their energy selling the problem itself. And he said it really should be just the opposite. You have to spend 90% of your energy selling the problem, and then 10% selling the energy, selling the vision for it. Because once people understand there's a problem, they're willing to make changes. In fact, they may even come up with some better solutions than you have once they uh, understand the problem. So let me tell you a little bit about the Eastside story where I serve here. I began serving at Eastside 11 years ago next week, October 1st, and I became the pastor here. I had interned at this church when I was 20 years old back in 1930. <laughs> and back in the 70s and 80s, Eastside was a rocking church, and really, they were having great days. And I interned, I actually interned back in 1980 at this church with a pastor by the name of Ben Merrill. Ben was pastor of this church for 22 years. He was a great Bible teacher, a great visionary, and a great leader, and really built the church in the 70s and 80s. The church had started in 1962, but he, but he was a great pastor. And in fact, he's still doing great. I was with him recently. He's 92 years old now, still preaches almost every weekend. And uh, I, I had lived with he and his wife, Pat, when I interned at Eastside. And I said to Ben, I said, Ben, I said, you, do you know what I remember most when I was living with you and Pat during my internship? He said, no. And I said, every time you walked up behind her, you would pat her on the butt. And she jumped in and says, oh, he still does. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to be like my mentor, so I pat my wife on the butt every chance I get, okay? So Ben uh, was here until 1991. And then the church, uh, he was followed by a pastor named Graydon Jessup, who's a great, godly, high-character guy. Uh, the church in the next 17 years got focused more on people in our community and looking kind of what they would call outside the gates at that time and, and uh, local compassion. And there had always been a global heart in the church. 
And uh, Graydon had a strong emphasis on prayer and was a high character leader, but not particularly a strong visionary. And over the next 17 years, the church kind of lost its way strategically during that time and lost its way vision-wise during that time. And at one point, their, their weekend attendance had been up to about 2,900. But when I arrived, it had declined down by a third to about 1,800. And if the church was predominantly becoming gray hair. 1,800 is a lot of people. But, but the church was dramatically going down. And if something didn't change... This could have been our story over the next decade. This could have been our story. Now, on the positive side, the church didn't have any debt at the time. In fact, they had $6 million in the bank. We solved that. (laughs) The church had no debt. We solved that too. But... uh, you know, we said there were about 1,800 people. And in, in our, we practice water baptism when people come to faith. You know, I encourage them to take that first step of obedience. And, and uh, in, in 2008, over the course of the entire year, they had, had 56 water baptisms, which might sound like the day of Pentecost, you know, depending on the setting that you're in. But I just thought, man, a church of 1,800 and within 20 miles led 5.8 million people. Surely heaven wants us to do better than that. And so we started talking to our church about the problems that we were facing, the decline that we were in, the average age was going, was going way up. Uh, you know, and we had become a predominantly uh, gray-haired church and the church needed vision and direction and we, we had to have some urgency to that. And I would just encourage you, whatever setting you're in, whatever challenges, tell people what the problems are. Help them understand it. Raise urgency. And I, I'm just saying, if you planted the church that you're in and it's five years old now, ten years old, you already know. You've got to start reinventing. You already know. There's new chapters ahead that you have to lead into. And one of the things I've always found during this prepare the soil phase is I can't do it alone. And so you've got to form a team of some kind of people who are going to dream with you, who are going to who are going to discuss things with you, who, who are going to collaborate with you and pray together. And so it was during this phase at Eastside that I, I formed a little strategic planning team. And there were just six people on it. I, I think that's probably about the max people you would want on a strategic planning team. Otherwise, you're always going to have to be explaining to everyone who missed the meeting what you did at the last conversation, etc. And uh, this is a group. We started reading books together. And we started doing retreats together. And we started just dreaming together. And then we would take our thoughts and start interacting with our staff. We would start interacting uh, with our elder board about what was going on. Because uh, we really had to clarify the purpose of the church. When I, when I first began at the church, in the church lobby, there was a church office lobby. There was a sign that said, you know, this old quote that we've all seen and used many times. The main thing is keep the main thing the main thing. And everybody seemed really proud. Of, yeah, hey, see that there? The main thing. Keep the main thing. The main thing. So in one of my first staff meetings at the church, I had a flip chart just like this at the front of the room, and I had that phrase written on it. I said, hey, you know, I see this out in the office, and everybody, you know, seems quite proud of it and everything. I want you to tell me today what the main thing is. (laughs) So I I went to a, a blank page, and I got a pen, and I started writing main things. Line by line by line. But I filled five, literally five pages of main things. And everybody was laughing, you know, like you are right now at the futility. They go, we don't know what the main thing is, do we? 
So everybody said, you know, the main thing is keep the main thing is nobody knew what the main thing was. Yeah. So we said, okay, hey, we're going to take some time. And here's what I told them. I said, I don't care if it takes us the next six months or 18 months, but we're going to figure out what the main thing is. And we're all going to, we're going to do this collaboratively. And we're all going to get on the same page together. And I said, my goal is that we're going to get it down to three, no more than four main things. And, uh, and if we can get it down to two words each, that'll be fine with me. And once we figure out the main thing, then we're going to move to talking about what the expressions of those main things are and, and those types of things. And we began our, this was in late 2008 when we began that process. And we began our strategic planning process with this prayer. We said, God, what do you want Eastside to look by the year 2012? And you said, why would you choose 2012? Well, it was a four-year horizon, which I thought was good. But also we knew that 2012 would be this church's 50th anniversary year. And I don't know what you know about the history of churches, but usually in the history of a church, there's two or three, maybe four decades of effective ministry. And then everybody starts remembering the good old days as better than they really were. And, and, uh, and the church kind of coasts on its past laurels. And we said, wouldn't it be something if when we turned 50, that we were taking our greatest steps of faith forward as a church, our greatest risks that we had ever taken, and, and we had the sense that our greatest days for the kingdom were ahead of us and not behind us. And so that really drove our thinking during that time. And we landed on three simple things. Uh, if you've been around our campus at all, you'll see this. If you go to our website, you'll see it. Our simple things, and it, it really wasn't anything new. You know, a river is purest in source. We just went right back and started looking at the church we read about in Acts chapter 2. And we said, we're going to be about three things. We're going to be about pursuing God. So the early church, you know, they devoted themselves to that. We're going to be about building community. They were devoted to fellowship. And we're going to be about unleashing compassion. They sold possessions to meet the needs of one another, to care for one another. By the time you get to Acts chapter 4, you know, it says there were no needy persons among them. He said, that's the kind of church we're going to be. We're going to pursue God, build community, unleash compassion. But then we had to figure out what the expression of those ministries were going to be. Shortly after I came to Eastside, uh, I got together all of our staff that worked with helping adults grow spiritually. So in those days... Our staff looks a lot different than this now, but we had a director of men's ministries. We had a director of women's ministries. We had a a family ministries director. We had a a Bible fellowship director, which was kind of like adult Sunday school we used to have. And then we had a life groups director, small groups, young adults director. I don't know. So there were about six or seven of them. And we came in, they came in my office one day. Again, I got another flip chart up like this. And I said, you know, I'm the new guy here. I'm just trying to learn. I sense we got a lot of different things to help adults grow spiritually. Help me understand all the different programs we have and ministries to help adults grow spiritually. And I said, I want you to tell me uh, what the program is, how often it meets, how many people are involved, and just subjectively on a scale of 1 to 10, would you tell me how effective you think it's being? You know, 1 being low, 10 being high. So we started listing all the different ministries we had to help adults grow spiritually. There wasn't five, there wasn't 10, there wasn't 20, there wasn't 25, there wasn't 30. We had 32 different ministries to help adults grow spiritually. And I'm like, how do you lead 32 different ministries? How do you communicate that? How do you finance them? How does anybody know what their next simple step is to take in their spiritual journey? And uh, so before the meeting was over that day, I gave everybody a blank sheet of paper and I said, hey, if all 32 of these ministries went away, but three, 
which three would you keep? And they're like, oh, you're not going to make me write that down, are you? I said, I'm just curious. What would you think? So I gave them all blank. Oh, excuse me, I said four. Write down four that you would keep. And so uh, they all wrote down the four they would keep. And then here was the interesting thing. I tabulated the results right in front of them. We did it all. Every single one of them named three of the same ministries that they would keep. And then the fourth one was always like a personal pet they were involved in, you know, or they were invested in, and those kinds of things. And, uh, and so we decided we were going to go to a simple model of ministry and that we were going to pursue God. And there's, you know, there's a thousand different ways that we pursue God, but we were just going to make our weekend services be our primary corporate expression of pursuing God. That we were going to build a community and that we were going to do that through small groups. And that we're going to do it through serving together on, we call our volunteers change makers, on change maker teams. And that we were going to unleash compassion next door, because Jesus said, love your neighbor, in the communities where we have campuses and where we serve, and around the globe where we feel like God's called us to make a difference around the globe. And that's what we're going to do. And that became our start doing list. And more importantly, it became our stop doing list. I sometimes wear uh, contact lenses, and uh, I don't wear them so much anymore. I used to wear them all the time. There was a while I was putting my contact lenses in, and I would get up to preach, and everything would be fuzzy and blurry, and I couldn't read my notes. I couldn't read my Bible. And it was frustrating. I was like, what is going on? And, and uh, you know, I went through this for a while, and I don't know what prompted me to think of this, but one Saturday night before the service, I thought, I wonder if somewhere along the line I've got my lenses switched, and like I'm putting the lens that's supposed to go in my left eye and my right eye, and I'm supposed to go in my right eye and my left eye, and, and uh, again, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I thought, what the heck, I'm just switching around, and it was just amazing how much better I could see at that time, <laughs> and, uh, and I was thinking about that, that, that's what happens to us in churches over time, we get our lenses switched, and instead of being outward focused, we become inward focused. Instead of being an inclusive kind of environment, we become an exclusive kind of environment. And that's what had happened to Eastside over time. I think that's what happens to all churches over time. Because the ministries become all about us. The ministries become about all of us who are already here. And we've got to do something new to dream beyond, to to. to look ahead a little bit. And I know this is going to sound what I'm about to say. When I, when I say it, you're going to think I ought to be sued for pastoral malpractice, okay? Because it, 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 it doesn't uh, ring true with it when we first heard it. But we came to the conclusion that in order to reach more people, we needed to do less ministry. In order to reach more people, we needed to do less ministry. Because we were doing like all these programs, and you just heard about like what was going on in our adult programs, our kids programs, our student ministry programs were all as complex as everything that I just described that was going on at the adult level. And what we found was Eastsiders loved their neighbors, had a heart for people who were far from God. We just didn't give them any time to be involved with their neighbors because we were so preoccupied with church activities. Like when we had those 32 different ministries and, you know, that was about a time when we had 1,800 people in the church. If you had asked our adult ministries team, how many people do we have involved in those ministries? They would have said, oh, 
uh, they, they, they were pretty confident. We had about 1,400 people involved. You know, we found out when we really did the work, and we, I know exactly because we did, we had 632 people involved. And the reason we had, they thought there were 1,400 people is many of those 632 people were involved in two and three and four and five groups. And we had to start a support ministry for groupaholics because they were just <laughs> so many groupaholics. So everything that I just described to you is in the, the preparing the soil phase. Raise urgency. Establish the vision. Get a team together. Do it collaboratively. Make it simple. And then you're going to have to move to stage two is where you actually plant the seed, the vision of change. And planting, planting a seed always begins with casting vision. Always begins with casting vision. John Cotter wrote a book uh, called Leading Change with Harvard Business Press. And uh, he says in there that the most common mistake that leaders make when they initiate a new change is they under-communicate the vision. He says, not by a factor of 10, not by a factor of 100, but by a factor of 1,000. They under-communicate the vision. Why? Because we live with the vision every day. We wake up with it. We work on it all day. We pray about it. We saturate on it. We dream about it in our sleep. And uh, we think when we've cast that vision one time that everybody's got it. But they don't. And we've got to, we've got to uh, clarify what the vision is for people and cast it uh, compellingly. And uh, I've, I've made mistakes in this along the way over the years where I've not cast the vision for change appropriately. And then there have been times where I've, I've done it more appropriately. For instance, I'll just take you back in time. I was For 18 years, I was pastor of Central Christian Church in Las Vegas. And we navigated a lot of change. And in 1991, so this goes back many years, we were moving our worship services from our a kind of a worship auditorium where everybody sat on padded pews and there were uh, light fixtures that had three crosses hanging on every light fixture. There was a choir loft and organ. And we moved our services down the hall to a gymnasium where everybody was going to sit in metal folding chairs and have about this much leg room uh, from the row in front of them. And it smelled like sweat in there. And I thought it would be not a big deal because we could seat 300 more people in the gymnasium than we could the auditorium. And I'm just thinking, hey, no big sweat. We're just going to move down the hall. We've been navigating a lot of changes as a church, so what's, what's one more change? We just announced one week, hey, in two weeks, we're moving our services down the hall. And, and uh, you know, I didn't think it was a big deal at all, but I quickly found out it was a very big deal. And it wasn't, honestly, when I got down to the core of the matter, it wasn't that people worshiped the other room. It wasn't like, oh, you know, that, that's where God is and I got to be there. It's just they've had so many spiritually defining moments in that space. Many of them first heard about Jesus there. Many of them came to faith there. Many of them have been baptized there. Some of them have been married there. Some of them have funerals for loved ones there. Some of them have, you know, God had met them there in a time of crisis in their life. And we just casually said, hey, in a couple weeks we're moving down the hall. We failed to recognize what an important transition this was in their life and how to prepare them for that. I remember nine, eight years later when we were not just moving down the hall, but we were moving eight miles away to a new location. We did a lot better job in preparing people for the change that was ahead. Now I say, when you're casting vision for the new, make sure you affirm what's ever affirmable from the church's past. Build on the values 
of the church's past. If you're making changes, talk about the values that have always been. Hey, in our church, there's always been a value to reach lost people. And it used to look like this, but in our day, it looks like this. We're just building on the same values of our founders or those who've come before us. And so you keep doing that. Now, when uh, we came up with this simple strategy of pursuing God, building community, unleashing compassion at Eastside, and wanted to start implementing that as a church, we had spent... Uh, eight months coming up with that vision and strategy, kind of behind closed doors with our staff, with our elder board, with some key leaders in the church. We had reorganized our staff to do that, and then it became time to cast the vision to the church. Now, in my younger years, I'll just if, if, you, if I could, like 20 years earlier, I wouldn't have gone through a six or eight month process like that. I would have said, I've been to the mountain, God has spoken, here's the vision, let's go. And I wouldn't have had anybody with me yet. And I would have hoped that they would get on board. So you can be a lot further ahead, taking a little more time at the front end, preparing the soil before you plant the seed. So I did a four-week vision series. It was in June of 2009 on this new vision. I just did four weeks. I based it right out of the book of Acts. And, and on, the, on the first week, I kind of cast the big vision of pursuing God, building community, unleashing compassion, and then we took a week on each one, and I talked about how we were going to be going to this simple model of ministry, and everybody knew, ooh, this is a big change. We've been a heavy, I have 32 different programs, and those are all going away, but about three right now, and we had this complex children's ministry and student ministry, and you're taking programs away that I love, and I, don't tell anybody, we took away vacation Bible school, and uh, yeah, really, and uh, so... So we're unfolding this to the church, and I knew, I knew this is going to be like, wow, this, this is out there. We don't, we don't know. And so here's how I closed my sermon that first day when I was casting the vision. I said, now I bet all of you look at me today and you're thinking, you know, again, I've only been at the church about eight months at this point. I said, I mean, thinking, we've got a loony new senior pastor, don't we? He's just loony. He's just crazy. And I said, you know what? You're probably right. I probably am. But I just want you to know, I'm not the only living person in this church. And at that point, I had all of our board, all of our staff, all the members of the strategic planning team join me on the stage. They said, I want you to look at these folks. They're as loony as I am. And we have spent the last eight months praying and seeking God and discerning what he wants us to do. I said, these people... They love this church. I said, I had my assistant do the math this week, and I did. I said, represented on the stage right here are 688 years of connection in this church. Commitment to this church. These people love this church. They would never hurt this church. They would never do anything that would damage this church. They give to this church. They serve in this church. They pray for this church. And what we're asking you to do as best we can discern, this is what God's calling us to do. Would you lock arms and hearts with us to move forward? Now, there's several important things that are happening in a moment like that. One thing that's happening is they realize I'm not a lone voice. And it's not just the crazy pastor up there. Secondly, most of the people in the church, they all know at least one person on that stage and probably more. And one of the things I found about successful implementation of change over the years is not how many people embrace the change that determines whether it succeeds or not. It's who embraces the change that determines whether it succeeds. 
or not. Because there are those who have influence in the church, the key influencers in the church. So, you know, 33 people may not have been the majority of our church that were on stage that day, but they were key influencers in the church. It was the who. And so everybody knows somebody. And so they look at that and say, if Julie leans in favor of this, she was born in this church, grew up in this church, raised in this church, maybe I ought to be. If Tim Bond, he's given 25 years of his life to this church, if he's... If he's on board with that, then maybe I ought to be on board too. The other thing that happens is they now have people that they can go talk to afterwards. I don't have to field every single question and every complaint and everything. They all have uh, people that they can go talk to. So, So did we hit headwinds? Yes. Anytime you initiate change, you're going to hit headwinds. So the next fall, fall of 2009, was when we started implementing. And we hit the speed bumps, and we got the wind in our face, and we hit the, you know, rock in the boat. And that's when you reach stage three, when you have to cultivate, when you have to pull weeds, you have to water, those types of things. One of the things that was so good during that time is I didn't have our staff or key leaders dividing. You know, as, as some people were critical or unwilling to embrace change or even maybe even some people feel choosing to leave the church over some of those changes, our leaders stayed unified because we had taken the time to prepare the soil and we'd cast the vision. And so they didn't divide. They, you know, nobody started going passive aggressive. Well, you know, I was never really in favor of this in the first place. I just, <laughs> you've seen that happen, right? Yeah. But nobody did that. And uh, I, I always say one of the greatest things you can do after you initiate change is to make sure you tell stories of short-term wins. Celebrate what God is doing. Because people go through all kinds of change and don't start to see some fruit. You know, they're going to be like, why did we do this in the first place? And this isn't going. Years ago, uh, when I was serving at Central Christian Church in Las Vegas, we had navigated all kinds of things and the way we did our weekend services and the music that we did and all those kinds of things. You know, that was back in the day when worship wars were a reality. And uh, I remember, you know, we, we've been going through a lot of change. And one weekend after a service, there was this kid who came up to me, a uh, kid, he was like 27 years old, redheaded guy. And uh, he had a 38 caliber bullet in his hand. And I still have it in my desk drawer today after all these years. 38 caliber bullet. And uh, he handed it to me. And he said, here, Gene, I want you to have this. Well, I didn't know what that mean. Nobody had ever given me a bullet after a sermon before. You know, I know what, what does this mean? He said, um, I was going to put that in my head this week. He said, but what happened here today was incredible. And he said, maybe... Maybe there's hope for a guy like me. God could do something in my life. Well, guess what I was holding in my hand when I stood in front of the church the next weekend? A 38 caliber bullet. And I told him the story. And then I said, you know, I know we've been going through a lot of changes and navigating a lot of changes. And it's been hard for some of you. And you've been so flexible. I just want you to know what's making a difference. And, and, and this guy, you say, he's like, he's alive today. And there's hope for him today. Because of your willingness to make changes and be flexible. Now, what does that do at a moment like that? It, it, it reinforces this. This is why we do what we do. You celebrate short-term wins. 
When we moved to this facility that you're in right now, we moved here in uh, November of 2012. So it's, it'll be seven years this November. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to do in that first month that we moved into the building is I wanted to just have all out you know, rock the house worship experience where we just absolutely saturated our rafters with worship and praise and gratitude to God. And so uh, most of you know who Lincoln Brewster is, and Lincoln's been a friend of mine for a long time. And I asked Lincoln, would you just come down and do our weekend services for it? And we're just going to make it a big worship concert one week. So this is like three weeks into the building, you know. And so, I mean, Lincoln came down and he brought his whole band and lights and video and show and and, uh, and it just rocked the place. So about a day or two uh, after Lincoln was here, I got this uh, email. And it was from a guy in our church who was in his 70s, Marlon. Everybody would know Marlon. His kids were in this church. His grandkids were in this church. And, and here, here's what he wrote. He said, Gene, I felt compelled to drop you a note about the service this morning. Oh, great. Here we go. When I saw the video clip last week about the visit by Lincoln Brewster this weekend, I frankly was not impressed. It seemed to portray the image of a pure rock concert, which would be loud, gaudy, and without much social, socially redeeming value. As a result, it seemed like many of the oldsters in my age group were inclined to just skip going to church this Sunday. Then he said, I must admit I was pleasantly surprised. Instead of just ruining my ears on a rock concert, I had what I felt was one of my more meaningful worship experiences of my life. Sure, the music was a little loud, but I could handle that. Yes, the lights flashing and all were also very tolerable for this old man. The message, though, was obviously there. And the target audience seemed to be there as well. I had four young girls in the row ahead of me, and they were obviously really, to put quotation marks, with the program. <laughs> I decided rather than dwelling on what I didn't care for about Lincoln Brewster's presentation, that I would instead expend my energies praying for these young people around me that needed to be reached and that they would be touched in a life-changing way. We usually never know what happens as a result of our prayers. But it is still much more worthwhile to pray than to just sit there and complain because this worship wasn't quite what I was raised with. Thanks, Gene, for taking this bold step to reach out to the younger generation rather than just being content to try to pacify us old folks. Marlon. Isn't that classic? Guess what I was reading to the church the next Sunday when I stood up. And you know what? Everybody in this church, so many of them that kind of maybe Marlon, and you know what happened to all those people in their 70s and 80s and 90s who might have had some of those same initial feelings. They were going, I want to be like Marlon. I want to have that spirit. I want to care about the next generation. My kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids. And and you you just fertilize that. You just fertilize that. Now, here's one of the things I always try to remind people when you're, how are we doing? Oh, man, we're out of time. Uh, I'll, I'll wrap up. Get, can we go five more minutes? Okay. Thank you. One of the things I always try to remember in this cultivate stage is that three steps forward and two steps backwards still equals one step ahead. Wow. And sometimes you have to remember that sometimes you try something new and you'll go way out like three steps forward to some, something you've never done before. You'll take a risk and like, you know, you might have some of your people going, well, uh, like, Gene, are we going to be doing that all the time? 
And sometimes you might need to say, ah, uh, no, you know, let's, let's step back a step or two. And you as a wise leader know, I started here, but now I'm here. And then maybe later you take three steps forward and you go way out here. Hey, look at me do that all the time. Wait a minute, we'll take a step back. And they're like, that feels better. And you as a wise leader, now we should be over there. And now we're over here. And I really think that you have to look at change as a transition process rather than an event. It, it, it is like the old story you probably heard this years ago about the guy who, uh, who was pastor of the church and uh, he was the old man, you know, he had the organ and piano on one side of the room and uh, he said, you know, I'm going to move that piano from this side of the room to that side of the room if it's the last thing I do. And sure enough, it was the last thing he did. He got fired at that church for moving the piano from one side of the room to the other. About a year later, he came back. There was a new pastor at the church, and the piano had been moved from this side of the room to that side of the room. And, and the new pastor goes to the, or the old pastor goes to the new pastor, how'd you pull that off? He goes, I got fired for doing that. He goes, real simple. I just moved it one inch every week. <laughs> and it's the idea, is it's that transition. Yeah. So just remember, three steps forward, two steps back. And then finally, you experience the harvest. And, you know, I told you in my, uh, when I first came to Eastside, uh, you know, and size is a relative thing, so I don't get caught up in that. But, but uh, you know, we had 56 baptisms that first year. This past year, we had over 900 baptisms. And, uh, you know, the church that was running in 1,800 now is, you know, pushing 9,000 on the weekends. Church was one campus. is now five campuses. And it's just... So, I mean, I just feel so honored to be a part of people who've been willing to dream and take risks to reach people who are far from God. But it's those four stages, I'm telling you. Prepare the soil. Plant the seed. Cultivate, fertilize water. You might have some weeds that you need to plant. I wish we had some time to talk about dealing with criticism and all of that in the third stage because that's what can destroy a lot of us. And then eventually, the harvest. So if you need to take off, take off, but I'll be glad to entertain a couple questions or a few questions for a few minutes if you'd like to quit. Yeah, I'd actually like to see if I can get a copy of that letter. I'd like to take it back to my church. You bet. Just email me. I'm on our website, and I'll email it right to you. Yes? How is it that people were able to um, feel a sense of urgency with seeing the large number of um, ministries? In other words, I don't know that it would be intuitive to my congregation that they would say, all those ministries, putting it up and realizing some moment of realization that three or four would be better. Yeah, so several different things that happened in that. That's a great question. Uh, The first thing that happened is we gave them the data on we have all these ministries, but we only have this number of people involved. And so we're not seeing, you know, we're, we're this size of church, but really all this ministry is just confusing people. And the other thing that we had to convince them on that was easy to convince them on, that the church is declining and we're not reaching new people. And part of it is, it's because we're so busy doing church stuff, we don't have time to love our neighbor anymore. And so we've got to change our focus outside. Then once we implemented, and I'll just tell you this story, in the fall of 2009, we went from 32 ministries to uh, three ministries. And basically, our whole thing became small groups at that point. And within six months, we went from 632 people in, in those 32 ministries to over 1,100 different people in small groups. And all of a sudden, you have the ability. It was the power of focus. Why did that change? Because we were championing, championing one thing as opposed to 32 different things. 
And so once it, that, would, that would be like the example of celebrating short-term fruit to say, hey, everybody, remember when we went to this six months ago? We got 1,100 people in small groups now. And uh, we're building relationships with each other, and God is moving. So, yeah, another question or two? Yeah, Kelly. Um, I'm always really moved by, by ministers who have been pastoring for a long time and still can emotionally connect to someone being saved like, like you are and have did multiple times. How did you protect that part of your leadership while you're growing the church from 1,800 to 9,000, but yet all this time later you can still emotionally connect to a young girl being saved? How did you protect that while you're harvesting? So Julian's question, maybe you didn't hear in the back, is how he's basically saying now that you're an old pastor, Gene, how, <laughs> how did you protect your heart to keep it soft for people who are far from God as the church is changing over time and... and uh, still emotionally connect with that. And I don't know that I have a great answer to that, Julian, honestly, but, but, but a couple observations is I always just try to stay close to lost people in my relational world. And you understand what the stakes are. And, you know, it's one thing to say people are lost, my community's lost, my world is lost, but when I put a name and a face and a neighbor on it, a family member, a brother, then it's real personal. And so that, that's part of what it is. And, and part of it goes back to, you know, I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but my dad is a pastor, and he died suddenly when I was 14 years old. And I had a real encounter with the Holy Spirit the day he died. And, um, and I, I just sensed the Holy Spirit saying to me, you know, Gene, what, what happened to your dad today is going to happen to every single person on the face of the earth. One day is going to be their last day on this planet. Yeah. And there's only one thing that matters on that day. Yeah. You know, do they have a relationship with me through my son, Jesus Christ. Fortunately, my dad did. And I just sensed God saying to me that day, Gene, if you'll trust me with your life, if you'll put your hand in my hand, I'm going to use your life to help people get ready for their last day on this planet and to live every day between now and then in my power of grace. And, you know, that was my call to ministry that day. And, and so... For, for part of me, that's just who I, that, that's who I am. That's my call. That's what I'm about. I'm all about helping people get ready for their last day on this planet and to live in the power and grace of Jesus every day between now and then. Wow. So, so good. Yeah. Well, thank you all for being here today. I'll stick around if you have. We hope you enjoyed this session from the Art Conference. Our heart is that you are more encouraged and excited about your calling than ever before. For dates and locations and to register for an upcoming Art Conference, visit artconference.com.